Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa <coughs> Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami It's uh, said by the Lord Buddha that the thing which obstructs wisdom, the thing which hinders the attainment of uh, the releases of the mind called jhanas, the things called the five hindrances. Even though that I've given talks before on these five hindrances, it's well worth giving uh, this evening's talk on this subject because this is identifying uh, one of the major uh, explanations of the barriers to both calm and insight. <laughs> and unless one has experienced the jhanas, then one's understanding and knowledge the full penetration of the meaning of these five hindrances will still be lacking because it must be one of these five hindrances in its refined forms or some combination of them which is stopping uh, one attaining to these deep states of uh, inner freedom, of release. It is the framework which was taught by the Lord Buddha, the particular method of the Lord Buddha for diagnosing the causes for lack of success in one's meditation. But not only <coughs> does it cause lack of success in meditation, <coughs> these hindrances by their very nature are forms of defilement mental defilement, of attachment, forms of craving coming from the illusion of a self. And it is on the path to deep meditation when one encounters hindrances and one uproots them through the power of insight <coughs> that one really comes to know what these five hindrances are, to comes to know their nature, their function, their danger and how they can be avoided. And as one learns about the nature of these hindrances, and one realizes through understanding their cause, how they are overcome, <coughs> then one is not only smoothing the path into deep meditation, but one is also understanding the finer defilements of the mind, those very intricate attachments which many people can't even see and don't even realize exists. I know I was reading a letter today that some people said that these, some gurus or teachers in India were fully enlightened. A good test of a person is enlightened, an arahat, a good test if they're an anagami is their ability to enter, say, a jhana, whether it's easy without difficulty. Sometimes that people can claim all sorts of attainments and they can give very wonderful talks which can be inspiring, especially to those who don't know. And sometimes it's hard for putuchanas, those who haven't seen the Dhamma, to actually tell the real thing from the fake. But one way is just to know that even an anagamian, especially an arahat, an arahat has completely abandoned once and for all these five hindrances. <coughs> an anagami has just abandoned most of them and just got a little bit of restlessness, 
in a very weak form. Let go of these things so much that even for an anagami, one who's attained to that state, there is no real problem. There's no real barrier between them and the attainment of these magnificent releases. So the ability to enter into jhana with ease at will is a measure of one's attainments on the path. And I'm saying this because even now, for those who may not even be stream winners, the very fact (coughs) that one has difficulty entering into these deep states means that one hasn't fully understood these hindrances. One hasn't fully recognized them and one hasn't found the way to overcome them, to get beyond them. And so the path into the liberations of the mind is still unknown to you. So that is one reason why the five hindrances, in my opinion, were part of the Satipatthana in the fourth reflection of Dhammanupasi, where the person would reflect upon these five hindrances, would get to know them and understand them, not only for the purpose of attaining jhanas at will, but also for the understanding how these are forms of craving, forms of attachment, coming from ignorance, or rather from delusion. These are the the fine strands of tight rope which stick you onto samsara. Not only that, the Lord Buddha said these five hindrances are the food for illusion. They strengthen it, they make delusion grow. And it's because of these five hindrances that are delusion, not seeing clearly the nature of non-self, the nature of cessation, the nature of dukkha, the nature of anatta and sunyata. These five hindrances feed that delusion, make it strong. So for those who really do wish to understand the nature of such things as the anidasana vinyana, if you really want to understand that, don't go searching through the suttas. Go abolishing your hindrances. Abolish them until they're not there anymore. And you know they're not there because it's easy for you just to enter into the deepest of meditations. You know those five hindrances aren't there. You've weakened them. You've knocked them out temporarily. Continue to knock them out. Continue to weaken them. Because you'll be starving. Illusion. You'll be... (coughs) taking away its sustenance, its food, so eventually that delusion will wither. It will wither until it gets so weak that one day after a deep meditation you'll push it over. Just like a strong person just pushes over a weak and withered sapling. And this is our path. I know that it's been said before and it's a very good explanation of the whole path. Centering on the abolition, the destruction of these five hindrances in order to weaken weaken ignorance and delusion and thereby to gain the enlightening insight. So we should understand these five hindrances. The Lord Buddha described them as Karma Chanda Vayapada Tinamida Udhachakukacha and Wichikicha. It's often translated, or as I like to render them, as <coughs> first one is sensory desire, but I prefer sensory concern. Concern for these five senses and all the world made up of these five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. It doesn't mean the sense of mind. That is not part of karma chanda, vayapada, ill will, the will to harm, to hurt, to punish, to seek revenge. The tinamida, that heaviness of body, that sluggishness of mind, 
the inability to keep clear, mindful, energetic. This is tinamida, sloth and torpor. Restlessness and remorse, udacha, kukacha. That restlessness of the mind which manifests as a lack of contentment and inability to stay with what you're doing. The mind which is always running off here and there. And the kukacha, specifically the karmic effects of lapses in your sila, in your virtuous conduct, what we usually translate as worry. Whenever you have a lapse of virtuous conduct, recently or in the past, that is liable to cause kukacha, that mind which is worried, unable to stay still, unable to be peaceful. Lastly, wichikicha is the, the doubt, that which causes the mind to waver, which means a lack of confidence, a lack of faith in yourself, in your abilities, in the teachings, or even a lack of faith and confidence in the meditation process. Those are these five hindrances in brief. I always like to focus on this first one, karma chanda. This is the concern which as people or as beings born in this human realm, <coughs> this human realm with <coughs> pleasure and pain in roughly equal proportions that we still are incredibly caught up with these five senses, so concerned with them, so attached to them, that we find it difficult just to let them go and to allow sight to cease, to allow sound, smell, taste, and especially physical sensations to cease. The reason why people in this world find it difficult to let go of these five senses is because it means letting go of their body. <coughs> it means letting go of control of their body and the control of the world outside. People feel a lot of insecurity in letting go of these five senses. And this is one of the problems because these five senses people take to be mine and <coughs> take to be a guarantor and protector of one's personal happiness that one is unwilling to let them go. This concern for these five senses is a concern which tries to eradicate the unpleasant experiences to do with these five senses and to seek for the happiness and joy and sensory pleasures of the world. It's interesting that when this, <coughs> especially this pain in the sense of physical touch, when there's unpleasantness in the stomach or pains in the, in the back or in the head, when there's what is called physical sickness manifesting as unpleasant bodily sensations, how often is it that we seek pleasure? That we seek just the delicious food? Or people go off fantasizing, dreaming, reading, or whatever else it is, trying to overcome that pain, that discomfort, by swamping it with pleasure. That's why many people in this world seek for such pleasure because they're responding to their pain. Sometimes, <coughs> even when there's, there's no pain, even when there's this space in the middle where it's not really painful but not really pleasant, people are still so concerned with this physical five senses that we're still not willing to let them go. We still play around with them. Sometimes, the equanimity of the senses which we feel turns to boredom. And from that boredom we go and seek for something to do, something to fill up this sense of pain and suffering of the senses with pleasure. The Buddha said that these five senses are by their very nature suffering. 
In the sutta we read out, they're on fire and fire burns. However, we still play with fire. This is why when we sit to meditate, sometimes we can't let go of this body. Sometimes that the aches and pains in this body we cannot discard. I think enough of you have experienced meditation long enough now to know the very strange experience that when there's an aches and pains, heat and cold in the body and you can't let go of that for 30, 20, 25, 30, 40 minutes the body is uncomfortable and you get up even after 45 minutes and the body is stiff and it aches. At other times you can let go of those physical discomforts. You can enter into a samadhi. I'm not talking about jhana. Sit for one hour, one and a half hours, two hours, three hours, four hours. And after four hours there's no aches and pains in the body. For 45 minutes it hurts. But for four hours you're fine. Can you understand just how these five senses lie to you, how you cannot trust them, how they promise pleasure but they only give suffering, how that they're always hungry just like someone always hungry for food can never get filled or someone thirsty who a few seconds after they've drunk is thirsty once again. So these five senses are they are great hindrance to meditation because they don't let the mind alone. <coughs> that they oppress the mind which wants to be free. That they give the mind business which has got nothing to do with the mind, the business of the world. That's why it's helpful to find a quiet place, a comfortable place, a solitary place where the <laughs> the problems and the difficulties of these five senses are minimized. And I chose that word carefully, minimized, because you cannot completely eradicate the problems of the five senses just through arranging a comfortable seat, a great diet, and an air-conditioned room, and a very soft, state-of-the-art zafu to sit on. It's impossible. Even the very best zafus, the very best diets, the very best bodies ache. So nature. So the only way to overcome this hindrance is to find a place of solitude, reasonable comfort, and then just to say that that's good enough. It's good enough for the purpose of letting go. And then you go through this beautiful process which the Lord Buddha said, which I was mentioning to the Anagarikas novice nun in the last uh, meeting when I was reading out the <coughs> uh, simile of the cloth sutta, where when a person, for whatever cause, arises this uh, pamuja, this delight, that from that delight, from that pamuja, comes piti. From piti comes pasadi, pasadi sukha, sukha samadhi. Samadhi, seeing things as they truly are, yatabhuti, yana, dasana, all the way to vimuti, freedom, liberation, enlightenment. From this delight, you get piti, this interest, this rapture is usually translated. And that gives kaya pasadi, the tranquility of the body. You can look at that as the beginnings of tranquility of the senses, of the five senses. All coming from delight in what is called niramisa sukha, in the unworldly happinesses. Delighting in the reflections on the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha the beautiful triple gem. Delighting in the recollections of the places where the Buddha lived 
if you've had the good fortune to travel to India. Recollecting even in the harmony of the Sangha, allowing that to give rise to this joy. Recollecting in the purity of your virtue, recollecting in the brilliance of all the generosity and charity you've given. Recollecting and recollecting, building heat upon heat until the fire of Pramuja blazes in the mind. Bringing that pity, that interest, that beauty of the mind. And then you find the body has become tranquil. Then you find the senses aren't irritating you as much as before. You've let go to a great degree of the five senses because you've started this process. You have to be careful because it's not just the experience of the five senses as they manifest right now which is included in this karma chanda. It's also the thoughts, memories, plans, fantasies about those five senses. The dreams of what you're going to do tomorrow. The fantasies, the memories. Lord Buddha called that karma vitaka. The thoughts about those five sense world. That too is part of this hindrance. <coughs> the body may be tranquil in this moment but its concerns are echoing in the mind with fantasies, romantic fantasies, sexual fantasies, dreams, plans, where you're going to go, what you're going to do, memories from your early childhood. All of that is all part of this great overbearing hindrance called karma chanda. That which delights and consents and is interested in and messes around with the five senses and the five sense world. When a person actually experiences a jhana for the first time, that's the only time that they have truly left the five sense world. In Pali that five sense world is called Karma Loka, the world of the five senses. It embraces the, the existences of animals and human beings and devas up to but not including the Brahma devas and right down to the hell realms. That's all part of Karma Loka. The next realm is Rupa Loka, the world formed of the jhana states. And the third world is the Arupa Loka, the world of the immaterial attainments. So only when you enter a jhana, when you've left the world of karma, karma loka, of sensuality, of five senses, so only then do you realize what that world is <coughs> and how it obsesses the mind. In rupa loka, arupa loka, the mind is freed from all that. Uh, five sense business. This is where you realize what karma chanda truly means. There's those two worlds or three worlds, the gate between the first and the second is a gate into jhanas. The only way you can leave that first world is by entering into the second world. You have to give up the desire, consent, interest, concern for these five bodily senses. It is why for lay people it's so hard to cultivate these jhanas. And frankly, that I am very dubious when lay people come and tell me they have experienced jhanas. But I always remember the simile of the Buddha of the three fire sticks, the one which the person takes from out of the river 
and tries to make a fire with it. <coughs> the one which a person takes, which is not in the river but lying close by, which is still full of sap, you can't make a fire with it. The only stick you can make a fire with is one which is lay, lying a long way away from the river, which has been so far away from the river for so long that it's dry with hardly any moisture in it at all. That stick you can make a fire. Jhana is like a fire. You can only make that deep meditative attainment when you've been out of that sensory world, not just for a few minutes or a few days, sometimes not even a few years, but for many years. Sometimes it takes that long to fully dry out. If you want to help the drying out process, drying out from the interest and concern in the five sense world, (coughs) restrain your senses, keep your precepts pure, absolutely pure, as it says, like a polished conch shell. Keep them pure like the bowl from which you eat your food. Would you eat your food from a dirty bowl? Why would you try to eat happiness from a mind which has been defiled by lapses of morality, lapses of your precepts? Shine your mind through the purity of your conduct. Restrain the mind from going out into that world of the five senses from thinking about it, from dreaming about it, from fantasizing about it. Restrain it in order to dry the mind out. And then you'll find, because the mind has not played in the world of the five senses, it's rejected it, it's renounced it, that karma chanda is so weak, it becomes reasonably easy to go right in to the jhanas. That's why lay people who are living in a very sensory world find it so difficult, impossible almost, to liberate the mind. They're just too wet. The second hindrance is ill will. (coughs) That ill will should be a reasonably easy hindrance to overcome if it was just ill-will towards people. But even that, some people find it difficult. Even in a monastery such as this, where the people are so beautiful, so caring, so pure, compared to the world outside. Even living with such marvelous companions in the holy life, we can still get angry at each other. You can get angry at the Lord Buddha. You can get angry at Ajahn Chah. It's not because of the Lord Buddha or Ajahn Chah. It's because of you. That's why even in a place, even if this monastery, were, all the people here were arahats except for you, you still get angry at somebody. That's the nature of this delusory hindrance. But at least in this monastery it should be relatively easy to overcome that anger through the practice of loving kindness, through the practice of forgiving, having that width of mind so you don't (coughs) misunderstand your fellows in the holy life, giving them the benefit of the doubt. When I was researching the Vinaya in my early years as a monk, because there was so much confusion over the rules of discipline for monks. So I took it on myself to try do some research and, and see if I can solve some of the problems coming up. One of the things I found, a very beautiful theme which ran right throughout the monastic conventions, was that as a monk, you'd always give fellow monks, fellow summoners, the benefit of the doubt. You would not criticize them until you were 100% absolutely sure that they'd made a mistake. 
you're 99% sure, you give them the 1% benefit of the doubt and you leave them alone. You trust them to be pure. And that was a very beautiful attitude which the Lord Buddha established in Navinia. It was an attitude which understood the power of ill will, the power of the fault-finding mind, the power of being critical to obstruct progress on the path. Even Ajahn Chah used to say, if you're going to <coughs> look at other people, look at them only 5% of the time, at most. Look at yourself 95% of the time. That 95% of the time is obligatory. The 5% looking at others is voluntary. You don't have to do it. You can do 4%, 3% or non-percent is even better. So we don't waste time developing the hindrance of ill will towards others. Nor do we waste our time developing the hindrance of ill will towards ourselves. The ill will towards ourself, called guilt, is that which stops any chance of happiness. When is guilt, there's punishment. Punishment means suffering, looking for suffering, seeking suffering, denying oneself happiness. You know that in the similes that the Lord Buddha gave, he called the hindrance of ill will being sick, being <coughs> having some disease of the body, and never being able to free oneself from that disease. And that's what ill will, anger is like. Once it gets started in you, you're sick for days, for weeks, thinking about that person or thinking about yourself. Never being able to have the the freedom of good health. Those of you who are sick in the body, you know just how it limits you, just how it, how it doesn't allow you that freedom to come and go as you please. Anger is the same sickness, only of the mind. It doesn't allow you the freedom to come and go. It doesn't allow you the, the happiness of health. Be careful of developing ill will. It's a cancer which eats away at all your freedom and happiness. I'm talking also about the ill will towards oneself. But there's another aspect of ill will which I've often taught when mentioning the precepts, uh, mentioning the hindrances. <coughs> and this is because I've seen it's a very fine form of this hindrance, which is common amongst meditators. This is ill will towards the meditation object. And it's fascinating to see the reason why one cannot remain still with a meditation object. The reason why one cannot hold the breath in mind or hold stillness or silence or hold a nimitta is very often ill will aversion, <coughs> not wanting it. And that's why the antidote to ill will being loving kindness can be applied even to your meditation objects. The cause is because sometimes when we meditate, especially without clear instructions or when we have those clear instructions but we ignore them and just do our own thing and be stupid, so often that we meditate and get no success. And the mind becomes conditioned to look at meditation as something which is unpleasant, unproductive, something you have to do, something which intellectually you want to do, but which are the core of things you dislike. Because you've got no happiness out of it. And it builds up an ill will that's why that sometimes some people have meditated on the breath and straight away a lot of anger comes up just because they're watching the breath. Tremendous ill will towards a meditation object. So that's one thing which you can check out in your meditation. 
literally, do you love the meditation object? Do you care for it? Do you welcome it? Do you have interest in it? Or is it something you'd rather get rid of? Is it like that visitor who comes when I'm just about to go back to my hut at 12.30 after the meal, been talking to people and someone else comes up to sort of talk to me about stupid things after the meal, receiving guests. I think, oh, why don't they go? That's not really anger, but it certainly disturbs the mind. This is what happens in the meditation, that same attitude of unwelcoming, that niggling aversion, it's the attitude you can so easily have to the meditation objects as they come up. Silence, one doesn't want to be silent. I'm fed up with silence. The breath, I've had enough with the breath. Even limiters when they come up. You can have ill will towards them. Reacting against them. So this is where you have to develop loving kindness. And opening up accepting, embracing, in the same way that a mother loves her only child, who can give her life to that child, so you can love the nimitta and give your life for that nimitta. As I was saying last week, to be able to leap in, even though you're giving everything and you'll probably die, with that degree of faith, with that degree of love, Ever notice just how faith and love very often overlap? Loving kindness, confidence, sadar. There's a quality in that, in both of them, which is so necessary for success in meditation. I have, in my meditation, because I've been experimental, just <coughs> resourceful trying to do things in different ways because that's my nature. I've tried to combine that loving-kindness, even with breath meditation, had wonderful success with that. Looking upon the breath like a baby, something very caring, something very uh, worthy of care. And it becomes so easy to be with the breath. It's like being with someone you care for and whose company you enjoy you're overcoming a hindrance here. If you can't stay with the breath, is it because of ill will? Try having loving kindness towards the breath. And if you can stay with the breath because of that loving kindness, there, you've seen a hindrance and you've overcome it. With Tina Mida, sloth and torpor, this is a hindrance which is hard to overcome because it's hard to see. When there's sloth and torpor, then the mind is misted. You cannot see very clearly in what you're doing or what you want to do or what you have to do. It's like the old gatekeeper in my simile of mindfulness, just having a blindfold over their eyes and not really being able to do their task because they're in darkness. In the similes of the Buddha, that sloth and torpor was like being in a dark, cramped cell. You can't see at all and you can't move. You're imprisoned by this sloth and this torpor. You overcome that sloth of torpor by the deliberate development of energy. That energy can be done in many ways. I already mentioned the energy which can be created through <coughs> cultivating the reflections on the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, cultivating reflections on the harmony of the Sangha, your purity of precepts, all your dana you've done, whatever else it is, doing something even for others creates that energy in the mind. And when there is energy, sloth and torpor are very hard to come in. When there's uh, energy there, the interest, the delight, you have no time to be sloth and, to have uh, sloth and torpor to come in. Sloth and torpor are just so close to aversion, to ill will. 
so often because there's no happiness, there's no energy, and those two go together, the joy and the energy. Because there's, there's no joy or energy, it's just an aversion to just existing, to being, to knowing. And the just mind just blanks off. Would rather just be dull than to be alert. That's why when you wake up in the morning, jump out of bed. Zippity doodah, what a wonderful day. You waited so long to have the opportunity to be an anagarika, a nun, a novice, a monk. This is the range retreat. This is a, a rare time of the year. The weather is reasonable, the food is marvellous, you have everything going for you. Why waste any moment? Get up early, jump up, another wonderful day, another chance to take huge strides towards Nibbāna instead of an extra hour in bed. You develop energy, you develop interest. The happy people get up early. The misery depressed people stay in bed and they die there. They die because they have no happiness, no energy, no purpose, no meaning, nothing except suffering. You put energy into the body, into the mind. You can seek those delights which the Buddha allowed you to seek, the delights in the mind and also the delights of nature. I was always impressed how in the suttas that monks would even write poetry about the mountains and the rivers, about the animals and the seasons. <coughs> you can delight in that world. It's not that conducive to sensory attachment. That's why monks would live in the forests, in the mountains, away from the world. So you can use the beauty in this monastery. You can use the service to others. You can use your reflections to generate that energy. Energy needs to be generated. <coughs> Just like the fire again, once it starts it takes off. Once it's initiated, you have all the energy you need. But don't waste the energy. Because so often energy is wasted in the next hindrance, in Udhacha, Kukacha. In just the restlessness of the mind, that restlessness is caused by discontent, by the fault-finding mind, by the inability to be where you are. Why do you want to be somewhere else? Will the next moment be any better? Sometimes that I lengthen the times I sit in meditation. When it comes to the end of the meditation time, when I'm about to get up, I say, well, what's out there for me if I get up? It's better in here. So I close my eyes again and carry on. <coughs> what's the point of just going out and doing things, or reading, or writing the letter? Isn't it better just to carry on with the samadhi, even though it may not be as best, as good as it was in the middle of my sit? Still, it's much better than is out there in that world. So I overcome restlessness with content, with appreciation, with gratitude of what I have in the moment. That development of gratitude is the way of overcoming udhacha, restlessness. Isn't it so because we don't appreciate all the things which we have? that we seek for something else. Isn't it so that because we don't appreciate what this monastery has to offer, we want to go to another monastery? Isn't it so that because we don't appreciate what this moment has to offer, we go to another, to another moment? Always seeking that elusive something else. You always notice, at least I've noticed I've, after 48 years of life, 25 years as a monk, but that elusive something is just out of reach. It's not too far away. That's the problem. If it's so far away, it'd be unattainable. I'd give it up. <coughs> but it's the illusion of just being a little bit further, a little bit more, and then you'll get it. 
48 years, just a little bit more, then I'll get it. And you realize that there's something up here. This is Mara playing. Mara leading you by the nose. Promising. Come on. Just like the donkey and the carrot. I'm not talking about my Nibbana simile. I'm talking about the carrot of promise, of hope, leading you into restlessness. Restlessness of body, restlessness of mind. The opposite of that is pasadi. Calmness of body, calmness of mind. And I've already mentioned one of the most beautiful ways of overcoming restlessness through development of pamuja, delight and piti. The interest, the rapture in what you're doing. (coughs) But the other way is developing this beautiful contentment. Even in (coughs) every stage of the meditation, don't go looking to what lies ahead, to the next stage, to the next moment. When you're watching the breath, don't go looking for the nimitta. When you're finding a nimitta, don't go looking for the next thing. Develop the contentment in the moment. Build contentment on contentment. Because it's a deepening of that contentment which takes you into the next stage. Remember the second noble truth, craving leads to suffering. Third noble truth, letting go leads to Nibbāna. The contentment is another way of saying letting go. Especially letting go of the controller, the doer, the maker, the messer-upper. In deep meditation you have to have that contentment, that letting go, that chaga, the giving away, muti, just opening up the hand, freeing the mind from all this wanting to get somewhere else business. Patinisaga, complete abandoning, annalaya, having so much contentment that craving desire just cannot find a, a foothold. Those are the, the four um, ways of uh, attaining Niroda in the Third Noble Truth. All aspects of the same thing, just saying this as the, the end, the abandoning of craving. And it's always good to remember the Dhamma, even in meditation, especially in meditation. That you can only overcome restlessness, not through more restlessness, not just saying I'm fed up with restlessness, that's being restless with restlessness, adding fuel to the fire, but through the deepening of contentment. Sometimes I've done that in my meditation. The mind has been unable to settle down, say, okay, I don't mind. I'm going to accept that, be content with being restless. Being content with being restless is one of these oxymorons, two words which mean the opposite of each other. But what it does if you point the mind in that direction, by being content with being restless, the restlessness is undercut, its fuel is cut off, it's smothered, it dies. And contentment carries on. You can't be content and restless at the same time. Focus on contentment, gratitude for what this moment is giving you, and then restlessness disappears. If a person was truly content in their hut, they would never come out, let alone go to another monastery. If they were truly content with the breath, they'd be still. This is how you overcome restlessness. So you ask, I'm discontent, that's why I'm restless. What am I discontent with? What do I want? And if I get it, will it do me any good? That's the little words of uh, meditation instruction I always used to give myself. Instead of thinking fantasies or dreams or plans or philosophies or the nature of vijnana anidasana, I said, I said I spent my time thinking, what do I want? If I get it, will it do me any good? 
And the answer to the second question was always no. Absolutely not. Very clear to see. I didn't need to be enlightened to understand uh, the answer to that question. So after a while, it won't do me any good. What do I want it for? That's how I overcame restlessness. You know, I made a resolution. I've kept it all these years, 25 years as a monk, never to ask to go to another monastery. As soon as I went to Wat Ba Pong, I never asked to go anywhere. I was sent to Wat Nana Chan. From there I was sent to another monastery after my second, for my second reign. I never asked to go. I think Ajahn Samadha sent me there. And then he asked me to come back. That's how I went back. Later on, I was sent to another monastery. Ajahn Chah sent me there. And then I was called back, so I came back. Even when it was my Tudong year, after five rains, <coughs> you were allowed, you expected to leave the monastery and go wandering. And I still was keeping my resolution. I wasn't going to go until I was asked. Unfortunately, I remember going on arms round one day, and Ajahn Jakaro, he was the abbot of those days in Wat Nana Chat, he said, Ajahn Brahm, when are you going to go on, on Tudong? You've been here for a long time. I said, thank goodness you've asked. I can go now. <laughs> if he hadn't have asked, I'd have still been there. I was sent to this place here. Ajahn Samedo and Ajahn Jakaro told me to come here. No one's asked me to leave. That's why I'm still here. That's how, that's how I've lived my 25 years, never asking to go anywhere. And that's just a metaphor of how to overcome restlessness. I was told to look at the breath by the Lord Buddha, to develop the breath meditation, to make much of it, to do it a lot. So I do it. Don't want to do anything else. I'll stay with the breath until someone tells me to do something different. This is the contentment which you can develop with your meditation. And it overcomes this restlessness which makes people go all over the place in the world, in their body, in their mind, especially in their mind. Contentment leads to stillness. Stillness is samadhi. The kukacha, the remorse, is always a fascinating one of the hindrances. It's from the studies of Vinaya, it's very clear that word means concern and worry only over lapses of your precepts. And it's why that it says even in the vineyard that if you're not pure in your precepts, you can't get jhanas. You can't get um, the enlightenment stages. It actually says that in the, the Nidana of the, uh, the Patimoka. The explanation of that is in the Vinyapitaka. Fascinating. Why is it it's, the reason is because when you break precepts, if you've <coughs> determined you're going to keep five precepts, eight precepts, ten precepts, 227 precepts, if you determine to keep those and you break them, then that has a karmic consequence which you can't do anything about except ask forgiveness, make amends because the karmic consequence of that will be kukacha, this worry about one's precepts. And that will hinder and stop you. Sometimes you don't know why that kukacha which manifests as restlessness, is hardly distinguishable from restlessness. Why it is you can't get deeper. Sometimes it's because your sila is not pure enough. It's kukacha manifesting, it's karmic consequences, not allowing you to go deeper in the meditation. That's why it's just so important to have a purity of precepts if you want to attain these jhanas, if you want to overcome precepts, if you want to see the Dhamma, if you want to become enlightened. And again, that's why 
when people say someone is enlightened and you see them being angry or you see them just being caught up in the world and, and <coughs> breaking precepts, not even keeping five precepts no way can they have any attainments the sila isn't strong enough there is a cause and effect relationship there kukacha will be hindering them it's a hindrance, it's a barrier, it's an obstacle it stops you enjoying the bliss and the beauty of jhanas it stops you experiencing the freedom of enlightenment why do people just barter such beautiful attainments and give up such valuable gems just for the stupidity of breaking a precept and the momentary pleasures which that gives you be careful keep your precepts so pure the Buddha said that his disciples should see danger in the slightest fault that is the danger Kukacha, that worry, that restlessness born of impure precepts which block you from attaining the very highest and the last of these hindrances is doubt Vichikicca this doubt is something which is doubt in your own abilities doubt in the teacher, doubt in the path doubt in what you're experiencing last week I mentioned one of the perhaps one of the best antidotes to doubt which is faith faith in the Buddha faith in the Dhamma, faith in the Sangha faith in the teacher, faith in the teachings faith in your ability faith in what you're experiencing now develop that sada. the opposite of faith, what is it? it's just looking for the faults trying to catch somebody out I really doubt they've really got anything I'm going to creep up on Ajahn Brahm's kuti tomorrow morning at 4 o'clock I'm going to listen to see if he gets up I'm going to creep up and just find out what people are eating or whatever else you want to do that's that doubt which will never give you any freedom overcome that doubt with a little bit of faith and especially <coughs> suspend that doubt for the time being especially, and this is an important part of meditation practice don't have doubt during the actual path the time you're meditating leave that doubt to the very end especially the doubt with is this jhana, is this a nimit Nimitta, is this the Patibhaka Nimitta or the other Nimitta? Is this the beautiful breath? Have I achieved anything yet? Is this stream winning? Am I an Arahat? Leave all that stuff to the very end of your meditation. Just allow your meditation to be a silent gathering of the experience of contentment, a silent gathering of information, of experience the end of every meditation to see if you can get yourself into the habit of spending one, two or three minutes just reflecting on all that's gone on throughout the course of the meditation <laughs> if you do that and spend the last two or three minutes recollecting doing Pachawakana that's a Pali word for recollecting then what that does is gets you into the habit of having trust that you do not need to work it all out in the middle of the meditation you do not, do not need to seek out the consequences of what you're experiencing to describe it and to work it all out and figure out what's going on leave that to the end by spending the last few moments doing that gives you confidence not to do it during the meditation because it's when you do it in the middle of the meditation that messes things up is this the nimitta? goes is this jhana? it might have been but it's not anymore all of these doubts interfere with the process
It's so close to restlessness. It's disturbing. It disturbs the contentment, it disturbs the peace, it disturbs the confidence, the faith. <coughs> so overcome that doubt. You can also overcome the doubt by being encouraged by a good teacher. You can overcome the doubt by uh, doing a bit of study. For those of you who've done a lot of study, who have looked through the books and probably know Pali even better than I do, can you overcome doubt by just reading the suttas? By comparing what this sutta says and what that sutta says? The only way you can overcome doubt is in practice, in meditation. And you can only overcome your own doubt. You can't overcome other people's. Overcome your own doubt and leave other people's to themselves. You try and convince someone else. I've done that many times, as you all know. I've wasted so much time. So overcome your own doubts. Let it go. When you overcome these five precepts, this, sorry, when you overcome these five hindrances, when you overcome these five hindrances, fully overcome them, there's contentment, there's stillness, there's freedom from the world of the five senses. <coughs> there's that delight, that loving kindness, that embracing, that opening up to the world of the mind. There's nothing stopping you. You're free to dive right in to the very deepest. You experience jhanas. If you haven't experienced those things, find out why at the end of the meditation. What hindrance was it especially stopped me during that meditation? You are being methodical in your meditation practice if you, at the end of the meditation, see what hindrance was the problem. If you got into a jhana, you don't need to do that. Just, what was that jhana like? And then use the power of that mind to develop even deeper insights into anicca, dukkha, anatta. If you haven't got into a jhana, what hindrance was it? Why? So next time you can start the meditation better equipped, with more insight, with more understanding in the path of meditation. Because people don't do meditation methodically, because they can have a bad meditation and not use that to gain understanding. They can get a good meditation, not use that to gain the experience of what goes well, and what, what, what works. They have to keep on repeating and repeating and repeating. The Buddha gave the simile of the horse. Some horses are just need, a, need a, a nudge from the, the owner and they'll do what's necessary. Some need a shadow of the whip before they do what it's, they're told. Some need to be beaten again and again and again and again and again. And still they don't know. How many times have you failed in meditation and you still don't know what to do? Don't be stupid like that last horse. The shadow of the whip. Just the shadow of the meditation experience. What's happened? Reflection at the end is like looking at the shadow cast by the experience. Learn from that. And then you won't have to suffer so many years of restlessness, disappointment, frustration in your meditation practice or in your monastic life. Reflect which hindrance was, working, was operating. And reflect how you overcome these hindrances. When you reflect on how you overcome these hindrances, not only do you smooth the path, but also each of these hindrances is a manifestation of the defilements. Lopa, dosa, moha, greed, hatred, delusion. You understand these hindrances very well and it becomes very, not easy, but very probable that you'll overcome something even deeper the sangyojanas, the fetters, which tie you to the wheel.
Karma Chanda. That's Karma Raga, fourth Sangyojana. Why a part of that's a fifth Sangyojana. Restlessness, restlessness. That's the ninth Sangyojana. These are just so well connected to the defilements, to the hindrances, to the um, fetters, to craving, to illusion. You overcome these five hindrances and you're getting very, very close to that which will liberate you. Not just in jhanas, but which will liberate you once and for all. The five hindrances are those which obstruct wisdom, which hinder the success in jhana. Know them, learn from them, overcome them, annihilate them, enjoy jhanas, become enlightened, become free. That's the end of the talk. Has anyone got any questions or comments on this evening's talk? Yes? If regarding the hindrance of ill will, if someone has a keen interest in a meditation object, is that a sign that the hindrance of ill will has been overcome? That particular manifestation of ill will, which is towards a meditation object, that one has been overcome. But sometimes there may be ill will towards oneself, not allowing oneself to go deeper. So remember that ill will manifests on different levels. At least that one is gone. And the ill will towards the object has been replaced by an interest in the object. Uh, Keenness, as you say, to be with the object. But it's not an equanimous being with the object, but a delight in the object. In the same way that loving kindness is not like uh, looking at your child with equanimity as if it's just like a child of somebody else. It's looking at it with a sense of concern and care, of warmth. So I like to be able to look at my meditation objects with that degree of interest and warmth. In the way the Western word, Western word, love is used, actually to love your meditation object, to love watching it. In the same way, you may love your favourite food. In other words, you may love solitude. In the same way, you may love monastic life, you may love the brown robe. It gives you delight. So, this is <coughs> how I would say the hindrance of ill will towards the meditation object is overcome when you delight in that meditation object. The mind leaps towards it. Okay, maybe just one question will be enough. We'll finish now. If you want to ask a question, maybe you can ask it afterwards. So we can end the question, Tana.